related research found uh, that there's just a, a, a truly unprecedented percentage of Americans who report self-censorship and a, a fear of expressing their their deeply held beliefs. Uh, I mean, I think people are, are tired of uh, not feeling free uh, to to stand up for causes that they're they're passionate about and and believe in without fear of reprisal. That is Sarah Ruger. I'm Dwayne Lester, and this is Top Priority. Welcome to Top Priority, a production of the Americans for Prosperity Foundation's Grassroots Leadership Academy. I'm Dwayne Lester. Today's top priority is free expression. Our guest today is Sarah Ruger. She's the director for the Free Expression Priority Initiative for the entire Stand Together community. Now, prior to joining where she works now at the Charles Koch Institute, she managed external affairs for the Institute of Humane Studies connecting academic research on human and societal well-being with opportunities for public policy impact. And she's also served on the executive board of Communities Overcoming Extremism, the After Charlottesville Project. This was a national initiative to convene diverse researchers, educators, community leaders, and rights activists to understand the tools needed to foster a culture of peaceful pluralism. And pluralism is one of the things we're going to talk about today. It was a great conversation I had with her. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Let's go ahead and get into it. But I really want to dig into this one because this is one that we talk about a lot. And I want to make sure everybody knows exactly what we mean when we talk about free expression. And I know at one point, uh, this priority initiative was called Free Speech, wasn't it? Uh, it's had a number of names, we're, uh, and we're getting ready to change it again. And we can get into the, the why there, but we want to hearken to this bigger vision of, of toleration that free speech enables. Well, tell me about that. Tell me about the vision for the Free Expression Priority Initiative. So the, the long-term vision is for a peaceful, pluralist society where people, at a minimum, don't use harm or coercion to remedy differences, but ideally are seeing the positive potential power of cooperation across those those differences. Because diversity uh, in, a, in a society of mutual benefit leads to innovation and discovery and social progress. Uh, unfortunately, we're not uh, currently living in a, a culture of, of mutual benefit, uh, which is what makes the, the bedrock rights of free expression so essential. People are turning to coercion. They are turning to censorship to uh, best their enemies and, and uh, remedy differences. So uh, first and foremost, we have to defend those liberties, uh, but we always want to be thinking and looking to take a step further and ensure that there's a culture that actually values those rights and has the the norms and skills necessary to uh, turn to peaceful means like dialogue to drive progress. That is a huge vision. Uh, it seems very overwhelming when you talk about it like that, because we, we <laughs> look at society today and maybe it's that I spend too much time on Facebook and Twitter, but it seems yeah. like rational dialogue and, and treating one another with respect is not very popular these days. What, what, it's not. 
No, it isn't. No. Um, so what, what, how, how do you, how do you overcome that? So a couple notes, um, you know, first, first what keeps me up at night, then what, what gives me hope and what we actually do about it. So you're right that it's by all accounts, it seems to be worsening in terms of the growing division in society. What, what in particular alarms me is this, uh, this tendency to view the other or the opponent as not just wrong on an issue, but actually unworthy or contemptible in some way that justifies uh, anything uh, against them. So there was a there's a study that came out of the the University of Maryland recently. It's called the the Lethal Mass Partisanship paper uh, that showed that um, majorities of of each self identified political party viewed the other as morally evil. Uh, and and 20% of respondents on either side uh, were comfortable. <laughs> they believed the world would be better off if the opposing side just died. Uh, wow. So when you have that level of dehumanization occurring uh, along along partisan lines, uh, it's a recipe for for danger. Meanwhile, you have a an increasing openness to violence as a, a legitimate means of addressing difference. Um, at the time of that paper release, 20 per, uh, roughly 20% of uh, Americans on, on both sides of the political spectrum thought it was acceptable to use violence to achieve their ends. That number is closer to 30% as we get closer to the election. 30% um, of, of respondents across the aisle say that uh, they can and should be able to use violence if their side doesn't win in November. So that's a those are alarming trends to say the least. What gives me uh, what gives me confidence is that um, the majority of Americans uh, fall somewhere in what I would describe and what uh, a, a great set of research called the the Hidden Tribes uh, polling found that most Americans fall in the exhausted majority. Uh, most of of uh, the the rhetoric that you hear, especially the the divisive rhetoric, are coming from statistically small groups on the extremes who just happen to to dominate the narrative and and paint an inaccurate picture of of the degree of of division that's actually out there. People are willing to cooperate at the community level. They cooperate every day at the community level. They have much greater trust in each other in their own localities um, and I'm I'm confident that after the election in particular we can we can work with that trust we can work with that willingness in a lot of ways we can work with that exhaustion uh, to help people people come back together are they exhausted just by the uh, just by the constant vitriol is that what they're exhausted by constant vitriol I mean I'm, I'm hypothesizing because the research didn't actually define what exhausts them um, but the constant vitriol and um, the the concern that they will be penalized by the expression of their views so the related research found uh, that there's just a, a, a truly unprecedented percentage of Americans who report self-censorship and a, a fear of expressing their their deeply held, beliefs. Uh, I mean, I think people are, are tired of uh, not feeling free uh, to, to stand up for causes that they're, they're passionate about and, and believe in without fear of reprisal. Yeah. And it, from what you're saying, it sounds like it's not just fear of someone saying, I don't agree with you or you're not my friend anymore, but a fear of, I disagree with you. I think you are probably an evil person. And now I'm going to punch you in the face. Now I'm going to punch you in the face. Now I'm going to get you fired. Now I'm going to get you pushed out of society in a way that that 
makes you incapable of living your life and, and fulfilling your potential. I, I, this is where I think in one of the most core ways this relates back to our, our vision. We are, we believe in people, we believe in, in their potential to grow and to change and to ultimately reach their, their full potential. And censorship at its core is a deeply, deeply pessimistic view of humanity. It's, it's based on the belief that you know, somebody is who they is, who they are on their worst day, and and that human nature is is something that needs to be curbed and controlled. And you know, we really believe that uh, that free people can do great things. And even where um, real repugnant ideas exist, and they do, um, the right the right thing to do is to change them and to change them through dialogue and to encourage people on that journey uh, of growth towards openness. You said something earlier I want to go back to just so I make sure that I understand it. What would you, how would you define a pluralist society? What does that mean? That, that is a recognition of the incredible diversity that we have in America. Um, you know, we're, we are even relative to other countries in the world, an incredibly diverse society, diverse demographically, socioeconomically, religiously. We've always been that way. You know, we were we were founded on on groups of people from a variety of, of international backgrounds and, and faith perspectives who just wanted safe safe harbor to to practice their their lives and and beliefs. And in fact, that that degree of diversity is only going to increase. We're, we're on track to be a majority minority country for the first time in our, our existence, which is all great if we have that, that culture that drives that towards innovation and, and cooperation to solve problems. What it means to be peacefully pluralistic is to live in a society where the cultural norm is to allow others to live and, and believe as they would, so long as they don't do harm to you. Uh, and that And that the role of of institutions like government is to is to provide safety, is to protect the rights uh, that honor the inherent dignity of, of every individual, but not to compel conformity or to compel uniformity of, of belief. So in short, I would call it peaceful coexistence across difference. I want to get to the idea of, of allowing these republic, repugnant ideas that you spoke of. But first, I want to go back to the idea of free speech versus free expression and what the difference is and why the name change. Yeah, really marginal difference there. Um, you know, ultimately, free speech is, is referring to a pretty specific uh, body of, of First Amendment rights. What we want to make sure that we're hearkening to is is a broader set of, of expressive rights that are important, uh, whether it's it's protest and uh, petitioning your government, gathering around the, the beliefs in which you uh, deeply believe, creative expression. Um, you know, it, this is a, a controversial uh, expression of speech, but flag burning is a protected expression. Uh, you wouldn't necessarily call it speech, but it is a, it is a, a political act and a, a way to uh, express your beliefs that that does fall under uh, the protection of the the First Amendment. So, it, it free expression is simply a broader term that encompasses uh, rights to associate, rights to petition, uh, rights to organize, so on and and so forth. And we care about all of those those rights. In in your opinion, I really want to emphasize this part. Why is this just so fundamentally important? Why why should people care about this? Uh, you know, as much as they do where they're going to get their next meal or, or how they're going to get clothes on their kids. Why is it that important to you? 
Yeah. So there's, there's two levels to that. There's why it's important to the individual and I think why it's important to society. So, um, people are facing tremendous challenge right now, now more than ever, especially in this, this post pandemic context, you know, we're up against some, some huge, complex, intractable challenges, whether it's, it's economic recovery on the heels of the, the pandemic, uh, addressing issues of racial injustice, a broken criminal justice system, uh, grappling with, with uh, what a, a, a healthcare system uh, that, that provides wellness uh, for people. Uh, huge questions like that require dialogue and cooperation to surface the most uh, effective solutions and ultimately to implement those solutions. When you lose speech rights, when you lose the ability uh, culturally and, and institutionally to have dialogue across divides, you lose the ability to solve those problems. Uh, so whatever is the, the issue that you care most about, free speech is what makes, uh, makes progress possible on those issues. And then individually, uh, speech is what free speech and, and engaging in dialogue across divides is what drives growth. It's what drives your learning as an individual. It's what empowers you to deal productively with all of the challenges inherent to a dynamic society. We want people to be open and, and not to react to all of the challenges in front of us with, with fear and, and closure. We want them to be capable of rising in this moment, at a minimum, to be able to care for themselves and their families, ideally to be able to, to step into these challenges in a way that, that surfaces solutions. An awkward moment in uh, one of our GLA trainings, we were discussing Frederick Douglass will work with anyone to do good and no one to do harm. And one of the trainers asked the group, is there anybody that you wouldn't work with? And an African-American gentleman in the back raised his hand and said, I won't work with the Klan. Yeah. Now, yeah. understandable, the trainer responded, I get that. I understand that. The ACLU worked with the Klan, though over free speech rights, which goes back to what you talked about, having these repugnant ideas out there. Why is it important that even the Klan have the, the yeah. right to express the most repugnant ideas in society? I'm so glad you asked about that because there's a, there's a lot to unpack in there. So, so first of all, answering why even ideas as abhorrent as those held by the Klan should exist in society. And then and then the whether or not we should actually work with them uh, is, a, is a different question. Um, at the end of the day, speech is about knowledge. It's about understanding the world as it is so that we are capable of making progress and, and solving the challenges in front of us. At the end of the day, I want to know who the Nazi in the room is. I want to know whether or not they exist uh, so that it's it's possible to actually change those beliefs, actually move somebody from a place of, of hatred to a place of openness. Uh, censorship only hides a it doesn't actually heal it. We're acknowledging that there are real ideas that need healing in the world. Uh, but this is where I would draw an analogy to uh, that comes from, from the pandemic. As with any disease or any problem or, or contagion, in order to develop an effective uh, cure for it, you actually need to, to study how it flows, how it catches, uh, how how the symptoms of the problem manifest. Uh, and, and 
by censoring the the problem, you lose that knowledge necessary to actually fix it. And then on the other side, um, you know, there's the old old Justice Brandeis quote about sunshine is the best disinfectant. Unfortunately, when you censor it, what tends to happen is those ideas just move, they don't go away. And in fact, they worsen, they move underground where they, they join up with like-minded individuals, they radicalize, they fester, uh, and erupt in some pretty pretty ugly ways on down the line. And there's there's data to back that up. The more we're able to track how knowledge flows online, the more you see what happens when somebody gets deplatformed from from Twitter or Facebook. You know, we we live in in the internet age. There's always somewhere some people can go to to express their their beliefs. Uh, so they go to Gab, they go to 4chan, and they they join up with a gang of of like-minded. Nazis who who uh, further entrench their beliefs and equip them with uh, the skills they need to fight for those beliefs in increasingly ugly ways. So um, we want them to be able to express themselves because we want to know where they are and uh, and help move those ideas uh, to a place of, of light and openness. And then to the question about, you know, whether we should ultimately work with those people, um, you know, I, I one, I, I would say it's it doesn't mean that especially those people who are are most targeted by the hateful vitriol have some responsibility to go engage with the the clan member I, I, that's not what we're saying and and it's it's absolutely uh within somebody's uh, right set to decide that that's not where they want to engage saying that speech should be free is not saying that you need to invite that person who hates you or that you disagree with to your dinner table you don't have to give somebody a platform especially your personal platform or or your personal time uh simply because they're they're free to speak that said somebody has to because that's what what is ultimately going to move move those beliefs so i think about stories there too that pop out to me that are incredibly inspiring to me and, and just show what's possible when we when we do engage one is the story of daryl davis uh who is a, a famous a lot of people know this story but i think it's worth worth retelling he's a he's a famous um jazz and R&B musician, uh, African-American gentleman who took up as a hobby, the collection of KKK memorabilia uh, as, a, as a reminder of, of how far we've come in the civil rights progress, but, but also how far we still have to go. And in the course of collecting the memorabilia, he of course came into contact with uh, current and, and former KKK members who were shocked uh, that it was a, a black man on the other side of the, the transaction, but they would sit down and have a conversation with him what he constantly heard was was that you know at the end of the day they never actually met the black man they've never had a conversation uh, with this this person that they were dehumanizing and and over the course of his life he's converted more than than 200 members of the of the KKK. There's a similar story from uh, a gentleman uh, by the name of Derek Black who's the son of uh, the founder of Stormfront, which is a, a major white nationalist movement and, and platform. And he was ultimately uh, de-radicalized and converted from that perspective. And he was a leader in that movement. He was the guy that showed up at the conventions and, and proselytized white nationalism. And uh, a, a Jewish gentleman that he went to college with began inviting him over to uh, Shabbat dinners and, and just not pushing him on his ideas, but just getting to know him as a human being and, and providing him an opportunity to get to know um, him and his family and, and his religious traditions. And, uh, you know, Derek was unable to hold those beliefs. Uh, it took months, but was unable to hold those beliefs after getting to know members of the community that he had, uh, that he had marginalized and, and hated for so long. And, and now he's one of the, the most powerfully effective 
leaders of efforts to take uh, men who are vulnerable and, and susceptible to that message and, and draw them out of the movement and, and back into a more productive course. Last one, I swear I'll stop rambling. Um, we partner with Urban Specialists, uh, a gang reconciliation group based in, in Dallas, Texas, and run by a, uh, a black pastor named Bishop Omar, um, who himself will tell the story of, of needing to broker peace between Aryan nation gangs and uh, his people in uh, the prison system. And at the end of the day, um, you know, he, he I, I was astounded to, to hear him say that he was willing to sit down and have that conversation. But if the toll is is human lives, um, you know, it, it, and dialogue can ultimately prevent the loss of those lives and potentially open a door for uh, changing of those those hateful views, then it's a it's a mission that's worth undertaking. And he described that as being ultimately spiritually edifying for him because when he's able to heal hate at the root of that those ideas it's fulfilling a, a deep sense of, of purpose in his life so all that to say i want to leave the door open to helping people make that transformation back from from even the darkest places one of the things i like about these conversations is the way um i have these transformative thoughts when, when, when i'm talking with you i'm hearing things that i hadn't considered before and it opens new ideas in my mind and one of the things you said earlier was you, you contrasted hatred and openness and i'd never really thought about the fact that hatred of something actually closes yourself off and, and it should be obvious i suppose but it, i'd never really thought about it in that way that when there is a hatred towards something you are closed off to any new information, any new opinions, any new perspectives towards that thing. So that. Yeah. And you're actually more susceptible uh, to manipulation. So another study released recently showed that the people who are in a state of fear and anger are much more receptive to uh, propaganda and misinformation uh, than people who are, who are in a, an open state. So it's, it's, to your own benefit to move from a place of, of fear or hate to a, a place of openness and curiosity. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, of Orwell, the, the two minutes hate. Yes. yes. There's a lot that Orwell has to say about the present moment. If everyone, everyone should go back and reread his canon right now. Uh, well, I'll go do that. I'll talk to you later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's probably back there on your shelf. It, there's, you know, there's multiple <laughs> copies. Well, I... Quick aside, I'll probably edit yeah, this please. out, but my, my wife ended up buying an entire high school library once um, at an oh, auction. That's awesome. Yeah, oh. it was it was, uh, it was an amazing story, uh, but I called her. She just went for the shelves, and we ended up with the entire library, all the books, everything we wanted. That's incredible. And there were like six or eight, maybe ten copies of 1984 and Animal Farm, and I was just holding oh, them in awesome. my hand just appreciating them because they were so well-worn. I was like, these have been yes, read. Yeah, like they've been read. That gives me hope yes. for the next generation. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I, I do have multiple no, copies of that. it. Everyone uh, should go back and read at least 1984. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. One thing I want to I uh, ask you about is the idea of free speech absolutism. And you mm -hmm. mentioned something earlier where you said people should be free to say what they want as long you know as long as they're not violating someone's rights essentially yep so would you describe yep. this vision as as free speech absolutism 
That's a great question. I, yes, in the sense that we think that all speech should be free. Um, now, of course, there there are um, you know people often forget that uh, there are certain kinds of speech that is not protected under the First Amendment. Uh, incitement to violence, shouting fire in a crowded theater, uh, targeted harassment. Um, you know, pursuing somebody and, and making threats of, of violence against them, none of that is, is protected speech. So when we say we're for all constitutionally protected forms of speech, that does not include harassment, incitement to violence, so on and so forth. Uh, but we are for all forms of legally protected speech, which which even includes uh, uh, abhorrent ideas like, like we just discussed uh, for the reasons we just discussed. My other caveat to that is just that that's not the same thing as saying all speech is equally valuable uh, or that all speech uh, adds positive, positively to society. So why we have the breadth of, of uh, strategic pillars that we do is because we recognize that in a world where speech is unfettered and free, some of those ideas are going to be bad. Some of those ideas are going to be harmful. We're not saying that ideas can't be harmful. They can be, just that the solution to them is is more speech uh, and, and ultimately equipping people and institutions in society with the skills and the norms that they need in order to uh, engage in, in debate and the marketplace of ideas productively. So it, it's why we have a strategy that I view as, as two sides of, of one coin. One is about protecting the rights and ensuring that they they survive for the long term. But the other is actually building the skills in individuals to be lifelong learners and people who engage productively in dialogue and building the capabilities in key institutions in society, whether that be higher ed uh, or, or the, the education system more broadly or local communities. Uh, with with what they need in order to hold that that deep difference peacefully and and productively and that's you'll notice I keep going back to science we have to we have to be rooted in uh, in science in order to to determine whether or not we're actually affecting positive change. Um, human beings are fairly hardwired to react to the new and the different with the kind of fear and intellectual closure that we talked about as being so dangerous. That's why this is an exercise in eternal vigilance. There is no day where we have won the fight on free expression and toleration and can pack up and go home. There's always going to be somebody, an incumbent in power. There's always going to be a view on the margins. There's always going to be a tendency in human beings to try to band together in tribes and defeat the other and to marginalize or dehumanize the other. Um, so the goal has to be to defend the liberties and to create those those norms and systems that uh, incentivize the openness and the better behavior and the the journey towards self-actualization. We're going to go in a little bit to talk about our vision and or the community vision, the standing together community vision and the four mutually reinforcing principles. I want to ask you before we do that, when I started learning more and more about the the threats and the uh, the opponents of of free speech, of free expression, I found something that I hadn't heard of before and I found interesting and I was curious if I'm sure you've seen it. How do you respond to someone who is who who makes the claim and honestly believes that words can be violence, that words are violence and therefore because violence is is an attack, is a violation of rights that there are certain things that should not be said because of the belief that words are violence. It's tough because right now uh, 
in the what you'll find in the the national conversation is that, that speech is violence, but silence is also violence. So I think you can uh, you can start to imagine why why people are struggling with self censorship. It, it has this damned if you do, damned if you don't feeling to the conversation, which is necessarily going to be chilling of dialogue around uh, issues that so desperately need uh, productive conversations toward toward solutions. I, my reaction to the um, the speech as violence idea is to to bastardize a quote from my friend Greg Lukiana from from Fire, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, which defends speech uh, in a in a campus context. And it's it's to say, uh, you know, at the end of the day, a punch is violence, and and somebody saying something hurtful to you, as much as that may hurt is nothing on the scale of, of getting in a getting in a fight or taking a punch to the nose. Like I'll take the I'll take the speech any any day. Harking back to what I said earlier, that's that's not to say that speech it can't be hurtful. Uh, we acknowledge that it, it can be. It can have uh, psychological harm. Um, it can cause psychological harm. But uh, censoring that speech, besides all of the arguments for why that doesn't ultimately lead to progress and transformation around the, the ugly ideas, also has devastating psychological consequences. Um, so I'd encourage everybody to, to pick up a copy of, of Coddling the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. There was also a, it was based on a shorter article, uh, same title in The Atlantic. Uh, and it just talks about how human beings are, are anti-fragile uh, in the sense that uh, like with many other natural systems, we get stronger through stress. Uh, and, and the opposite is true. If we are sheltered from stress, if we aren't exposed to contagions, if we aren't uh, strengthening our, our muscles through through stress, we actually become weaker, more susceptible to disease, uh, less, less fit in a way that allows us to survive. Our brains are the same way. If we are if we can, if we deal with ideas that hurt and challenge us by retreating from them, we ultimately become less and less capable of dealing with them productively. And at the end of the day, we live in a dynamic society. It's impossible to avoid things that create difficulty for you mentally. So the right solution is to develop the faculties necessary to be able to take in those ideas without feeling uh, the harm and, and the trauma from when they they first occur. So it's it's not to diminish uh, the very real hurt that can occur from from ugly ideas, but simply to say that there are practices that you can engage in. You have agency in in developing reactions and internalizing skills uh, that make you able to go through the world uh, and and take those take those hurts in a way that that still allows you to grow and flourish regardless of whether that person is able to grow and flourish. I went ahead and looked it up while you were talking and coddling of the American mind is on Amazon right now on a Kindle version, five bucks. So it's well, well worth your Do money. It. Yeah. It's, and it, it, it's got all kinds of applications. It's got advice for parenting to raise resilient and open children. It speaks into the current moment societally, societally, lots to offer anybody. We often, t we talk about our, community vision every one of these podcasts so one thing that i've done in the past when working with with uh groups to understand our vision is i'll have them actually do a mind map of all the principles that that have you know that are part of market-based management that are part of our vision that are part of all the different ideas that we all the different things that we do and then 
we'll talk about specific priority initiatives and I'll say, look at how all of these principles lead back to where we have our vision at and why we took this stand based on these principles that we believe. That's why I like talking about the mutually reinforcing principles when we talk about the priority initiatives because it helps people better understand why we take this position. Yeah. So our vision to start with, we break barriers that stand in the way of people realizing their potential. This moves our society towards one of mutual benefit where people succeed by helping others improve their lives. We've talked a little bit about how free expression leads to this, but I wondered, is there anything else about the, how this vision for the priority initiative accomplishes the overall or, or helps to accomplish the overall community vision of moving a society towards mutual benefit? I, I think I'd ask you to, to ask any specific questions. I think we, just to call them out explicitly, I, th I think we've talked about them pretty, pretty directly. So in terms of breaking barriers, both internally in terms of overcoming fear and intellectual closure and moving towards a place of curiosity and, and openness and the value that that has for our potential to be fulfilled lifelong learners, but also the value of, of uh, speech and, and toleration in broader society to, to actually break those, those barriers on an issue specific basis. With respect to the, the mutually reinforcing principles, um, self-actualization, uh, you know, I think, I think we've talked about speech in terms of being the, the lifelong learner there, and that's, that's where that relates. Um, you know, the mutually, the, a society of mutual benefit uh, is, is only possible if, if uh, people are capable of, of cooperation uh, and, and uh, are not resorting to force or coercion to achieve their ends, aren't viewing people as, as means to an end, uh, and, and this strategy very, very directly uh, affects that. Um, you know, our, our whole, we'll, we'll probably get into the, the strategic pillars, but our whole Courageous Collaborations initiative, uh, its its goal is to cure intolerance and to move people to a place of, of openness, to identify the science-backed tools and techniques that encourage that curiosity and that openness and, and help people overcome their natural tendencies towards, towards fear and closure. We're supporting research and science that uh, that informs uh, what those tools should be. And, and we're supporting the development of a, a field, uh, a real community of practice to disseminate those tools at scale in communities. And then of course, all of our work uh, to protect free expression and, and civic engagement and uh, government accountability uh, is, is our effort to make sure that everyone enjoys the benefits of, of equal rights. As we said earlier, um, there's always going to be an incumbent in power and there's always going to be someone on the margins. Uh, and that's why we need eternal vigilance in defending the constitutional liberties that um, that allow for those rights. I like the idea of, of free speech breaking those internal barriers. And it could be just because I spend so much time right here in my home office <laughs> with my nose and one of these books behind me. But I, I, I think about the fact that publishing a book is also a part of free expression is also a part of free speech. And if there's something out, out there that could break through an internal barrier that, that people hold that I hold, and yet it's not allowed to be published. You, you are in a way you're absolutely keeping that person from reaching their, their most, you know, their best life, their utmost potential because ideas that can help them move forward aren't allowed to, be, to come to the public square to be debated. Absolutely. What's what's a little bit tricky uh, in that 
every every idea uh, should be able to enter the marketplace of ideas and have to win on its own merit. Um, you know what we what we don't say, and this is something that's coming up a lot, especially in right of center uh, policy conversations, uh, is is what private companies have the right to do. So at the end of the day, most publishing houses are, are private companies, and and saying that we think speech should be free does not mean that we think that those companies should be compelled to have to publish something that doesn't reflect their their vision and ethos. Um, you know, a, a, this is just an illustration. A, a Christian publishing house should not have to publish uh, an atheist publication or, um, you know, a, a, a Jewish publishing house should not have to uh, publish uh, Stormfront's uh, white nationalist propaganda. We do think those ideas should be allowed uh, to to get out there on whatever platform will will have them. Um, but we don't think that, that means that people aren't still free in a private context, whether in their homes or in their businesses, to define the kind of community that they that they want. This is coming up a lot in the context of uh, of social media platforms and speech online and private companies like Facebook, Twitter, and and YouTube. At the end of the day. Um, those companies have the right to decide what kind of communities they want to build. Do we think that it's good for society when they censor? No. For all the reasons that we discussed, we would like to see them uphold free speech principles because we think that will best drive outcomes in society. And, and we will certainly use our voices to let them know that we think they should be honoring those principles. But they shouldn't be compelled by the government to build a particular kind of, of community. Um, and, and they shouldn't be required to show content that doesn't reflect their their community values going back to the idea of breaking barriers uh, i've often said in in whatever training i'm doing that you'll often find internal barriers in one person can manifest themselves as external barriers in another and if you again if you're not allowing ideas that can change a person's internal barriers then you are prohibiting or you're keeping external barriers from being removed at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah, I have nothing else to say about that except to agree. <laughs> and there's a link between the two, and that's why you have to have a strategy that covers both. But it, you said this at the beginning of our conversation, the inherent challenge in the work that we do through the Priority Initiative is, is in prioritizing, is covering the breadth of how these issues manifest in terms of internal and external barriers, but not being not trying to cover so much waterfront through our strategy that we're, we're not effective on the margins. We can't try to take on so much that, uh, that we don't drive uh, success where, where the threats are, are most critical. So we're, we're always trying to determine um, and constantly reevaluating where we're positioned to make the greatest impact. The first of the mutually reinforcing principles is equal rights. And I think it's easy to see how suppressing free speech is a violation of someone's rights, where you're saying to them, no, you cannot say that. What I find brilliant is something Frederick Douglass said. And I want to go to this quote, and I'm going to read it directly. To suppress free speech is a double wrong. It violates the right of the hearer as well as those of the speaker. It is just as criminal to rob a man of his right to speak and hear as it would be to rob him of his money. When I first yes. read that, I, I, it, was, it was another one of those flash moments where I'm like, that is so brilliant in that you're not just violating the person's right to say it, you're violating my right to hear it. Because to hear is to have an opportunity to grow. 
Um, it, it, I would link that quote to uh, the, the John Stewart Mill argument for why we should engage in, in dialogue with uh, people with whom we, we significantly disagree. And it's because I, this is a gross oversimplification of his very graceful argument, but uh, nothing but good can come from that conversation. Uh, let's say you're 100% right, which is rarely the case in any complex argument, but let's say you're 100% right and the other person is 100% wrong. Uh, you will have come away from that, from listening to that person with a deeper understanding for how they formulate their arguments and what, and the grounding for their position in a way that makes you more capable of effectively articulating your own position. So you emerge from that conversation better able to serve the cause of your right position. Let's say that you're wrong or, or even partially wrong. Well, then you you come away from that conversation with uh, an awareness uh, or, or a new awareness of uh, of the issue or a discovery uh, that you wouldn't have had previously in a way that better positions you to find fulfillment and to add value in a society of, of mutual benefit. So um, there's there's value to engaging in this dialogue both for, for both people uh, on either side of the conversation. When it comes to mutual benefit, I think it's it's fairly obvious how this freedom to say what we want, what you just talked about, is the growth of the individual. That That's obviously mutual benefit. What isn't so obvious is the virtuous cycle that comes from that. How allowing that not only benefits the two people engaged in the conversation, but the, the overall benefits that it shows to society as a whole. Can you speak to that? Again, I think you said it pretty effectively. The other, the other thing I would add to the idea of virtuous cycles of, of mutual benefit is that uh, driving those virtuous cycles depends heavily on knowledge to do so effectively. Um, the broader market economy depends heavily on on knowledge and and the ability to uh, to provide value to a customer or a partner requires knowledge of what they value uh, and and um, of of the needs and and the opportunities in society that your your product or your offering is is able to address and to meet. And and this goes back to what we were saying earlier. Free speech is fundamentally about the flow of knowledge in society. Uh, we don't want to stymie. Uh, the discovery and the insights that that make a society of mutual benefit possible. Uh, that's that's one of the reasons why you know one of the policy planks that we work on uh, is is transparency. Actually, uh, having it be possible to access the information necessary to hold power to account. Because at the end of the day, uh, we need as much knowledge as possible about the barriers, internal and and external, to flourishing and and speech is core to, to gaining that knowledge. Openness actually has in it allowing the free movement of ideas, resources, and people that generate knowledge, innovation, and opportunity. And having read Matt Ridley's latest book, Innovation, um, about innovation, it, it really is powerful that this, this free flow of information is allowed because as Ridley shows, it isn't just the, the intellectual elites that are creating all this innovation. It's usually people you wouldn't expect. It, it's the people working on, on the, the ground level of things that are saying, actually, if we took this and we took this and we used it this way, this would do something great. And those innovations have come from the free flow of knowledge, the free flow of ideas. 
Um, and there was another point. There was another point I was getting to when it comes to openness, and it, it goes back to something you said earlier: is toleration. Toleration is important to openness. One thing that I think we've seen is toleration almost be redefined as acceptance. Yeah. And they're not the same thing. You can tolerate yeah. an idea by allowing it to be said. That doesn't mean you have to agree with it or accept it. Am I am I wrong in what I'm saying there? You're 100% right in what you're saying. It it means uh, this is this is what we mean by peaceful coexistence versus compelled conformity. There are a lot of people out there who are talking about the importance of civility, civil discourse, tolerance in in with an eye towards towards building consensus in the middle or ultimately persuading people to their own perspective. That's not what we're talking about. Sometimes there's a need to, to persuade or to build consensus in order to get policy done, but uh, we have to be capable of respecting each other's inherent human dignity, regardless of whether or not they ultimately agree with us or, or become like us. Um, we've got a grantee partner by the name of, of Ibu Patel, who runs Interfaith Youth Corps that, that builds skills for cooperation across deep difference in, in communities and on college campuses. And he likes to uh, describe the goal of, of America as, as not being about a melting pot where everybody's differences run together in one big brew. Uh, we want a potluck situation where, where everyone's able to bring all of the beautiful differences that they have to offer to uh, a smorgasbord of, of interesting experiences. Um, so we never want to drive towards, um, it's those differences that make us capable of the innovation that you're, you're describing. But the other thing I'd add to this, this idea of, of openness is a bit of a, a challenge or a push to anybody who, who listens to this. Um, you know, we talked about the, the stark moment that we find ourselves in now at the beginning of this, this conversation. And I, I, while I have tremendous hope that we can overcome this moment, I think we have all of the, the tools we need to be able to do so. It is fair to call this, this a tipping point uh, and, and a moment that we all have to rise to meet and that all of us who have lead roles as, as, citizens and activists in our community uh, need to to model a better way through. So, you know, we talked about some of the seismic shifts that we're experiencing societally right now, the, the becoming a majority minority country, um, the fundamentally different ways that knowledge flows through society since the advent of the internet and the elimination of, of gatekeepers of, of knowledge and uh, a total fundamental overhaul of uh, our, our economy and, and uh, how, how jobs uh, flow and, and surface uh, given technological advances, all things that should be positive long-term, but just tremendous change. You couple that with what we know about human psychology and our tendency to retreat into ourselves and react with fear when faced with dynamism. And it's, it's not hard to see why, why the pivot moment is, is coming to us. So instead of, instead of retreating in fear and, and closing off to each other and closing off to these changes, now more than ever, we have, to, we have to lean in, we have to jump into the conversation about how to drive solutions and how to create uh, innovations that will, will solve the problems before us. I'm confident we can come out on the other side of this stronger than we were before, but we're gonna go through a period of, of tribulation and and change uh that we need to to rise to meet when it comes to openness and transparency 
there there are some who will say that we need more transparency in who is funding PACs, who is funding nonprofits, this idea of donor disclosure. How does that relate to free expression? Great question. I'm glad you asked. It's very important uh, to draw a distinction between the value of transparency for government, the, the powerful fundamentally coercive institution that is government and ensuring that there's transparency uh, to holding that power to account that we all have the knowledge that we need to, to be watchdogs and, and to ensure that that power is being used uh, responsibly and, and productively. But citizens, individuals uh, have rights to privacy. We, we can and should be able to uh, engage around our deeply held beliefs without fear of intimidation uh, from powerful forces. And that's, that's why anonymity is, is so important. That's why anonymous speech is so important. That's why uh, anonymous giving is important. Uh, at the end of the day, we, you know, we described uh, that we're in a, a highly divisive climate where people view the other as, as evil and are willing to take significantly harmful actions to deter uh, individuals from expressing those beliefs. That that makes it more important than ever that uh, if somebody wishes not to incur those consequences, that they can still organize, associate, speak, and engage ar around their, their deeply held principles uh, without those without those fears. And then I, I would also root my answer in that in uh, historical precedent. I mean, where where some of those rights protection protections come from are from key Supreme Court uh, cases like the NAACP versus Alabama, where um, you know, this was this was in the height of the, the civil rights movement, and um, the state of Alabama was trying to compel the NAACP to turn over their donor list because uh, because they wanted to intimidate the people who were on that that list for the purpose of, of stopping progress on those rights. I think it's important to remember that even if your quote-unquote side is enjoying a position of power now in a way that makes you want to crowd out people with different ideas, unfortunately, you just never know uh, which way society is going to, to swing. And it, it's always the marginalized voices that these rights most protect uh, and if you give away the power now, it might not be there uh, to protect you when you need it later. All of the reinforcing principles, equal rights, mutual benefit, openness, lead up to the fourth mutually reinforcing principle of self-actualization, which uh, allows the benefits of equal rights, mutual benefit, openness, to help someone realize their potential and find fulfillment. How is this mutually enforcing principle applied to free expression? So we've talked about it in the, the context of the importance of, of cultivating curiosity and openness and, and this, uh, this mentality of being a, a lifelong learner and the role that the dialogue plays in, in making that possible. Um, I would probably answer this by, by thinking about how this manifests in terms of our, our strategy and, and how we promote that kind of, of self-actualization deliberately through our, our work. So uh, returning to what we talked about and how, how psychologically hard it is to engage in this, even though it's important. Um, yeah, at the end of the day, the, the skills to engage in, in dialogue, the ability to be openness are, are learned skills. Um, they're, they're 
muscle memories in your brain, just like you, you wouldn't go into the gym ready to, to lift 200 pounds out of the gate and have to work your way up to it and consistently practice um, these, these critical thinking skills and, and the ability to be curious and, and to have dialogue are, are learned traits. So we support uh, programs at both the K-12 and college level that actually teach students how to do this productively and, and healthily. Um, you know, we, we work with GLA to lead trainings along these lines. This is this is an eternal practice. Self Part of the reason why self-actualization is such a powerful concept is because it implies a journey without end. Uh, there, there's not a, a single moment or a point at which we become sufficiently learned and, and fulfilled. We are, we are constantly on this journey of, of self-improvement. So uh, what we're striving to do through this priority initiative is, is to create uh, capabilities within key institutions of learning uh, that empower students to, to begin and continue on that journey. Is there anything going into this podcast that you wanted to talk about or wanted to bring up that we haven't talked about yet? It's been a pretty wide-ranging conversation so far. Yeah, I've had a lot of fun with it. Um, two th- oh, really only two things. I, I just wanted a chance to kind of sum up the pillars of our strategies so I can invite people to contribute to them uh, wherever they can and then and then to make kind of one general point about where um, the divisions in society are, are coming from. So... We shared our, our vision uh, for a, a peacefully pluralistic society resting upon the bedrock of uh, respect for core civil liberties like free expression. The way, and, and you pointed out, that's a tremendous waterfront to cover. Um, so just to share how we think about prioritizing that, um, we're building capabilities uh, and, and supporting the litigation necessary to defend these rights. Fortunately, um, the First Amendment as a body of law is stronger than it's ever been and on track to, to stay that way, given the makeup of the of the courts. Um, so we really target our efforts towards uh, critically threatened issues uh, that will have significant short term effects that, that can't be borne uh, in the waiting period between now and when it would be remedied at the, the Supreme Court level. So this is why we engage around. Uh, we particularly focus on on campus speech issues because of the significant uh, downstream impact in society if uh, students don't learn how to think critically and effective research isn't coming out of the academy. Uh, we work on civic engagement issues, which protects individuals' ability to participate in, in civic life, uh, to express their deeply held beliefs. This is where our, our work to defend donor privacy is situated. This is where our um, our work to uh, promote transparency and accountability for government is situated. And then, of course, we we work to defend speech online, which I'm sure you've spoken with my, my colleague, Jesse Blumenthal, about and is, is largely driven by our, our partners in technology and innovation. But then, again, recognizing that the speech rights are just one side of the, the coin, the other two pillars of our strategy are um, supporting openness in the key institution of education. That's those programs that I described to actually help students build the skills necessary to hold deep difference productively. And then we support the Courageous Collaborations Initiative, which is our work to uh, develop and ultimately scale the tools to move uh, people uh, from a place of, of intolerance or intellectual closure to a place of of openness and a willingness to cooperate across difference. So I think that's that's relevant. Uh, all of that is relevant to the work that you all are doing. And, and it's uh, it's something that we're eager to, to help with and engage in any capacity. And then 
the other um, the other point that I think is important to, to bring up because I hear you know I, I issue this challenge to to meet this moment with a, a spirit of openness. One of the things I hear back in in response, the more embattled that we get as a society, is is basically a blame game response. Like, well, I'll lay down my arms if they will over there. I can't I can't stop my role in this fight because if I do, that tribe is going to get me. Um, you know whether it's it, it's pointing a finger if it's if it's progressives pointing a finger at at conservatives or, or vice versa. Um, you know, you get in this this loop that sounds awfully uh, a lot like uh, <laughs> the nuclear arms race towards uh, mutually assured destruction in the end. Um, this is a problem that comes from the right and the left. Uh, I can support that through endless anecdotes, but it's also supported through through polling. I sh- I'd point everyone towards. Uh, Cato's tolerance and, and free speech poll um, that found that seemingly the only thing that uh, self-identified Republicans and Democrats can agree upon these days is that censorship is justified uh, and that and that uh, speech needs to be silenced. We just disagree on who should have the right to speak and, and who should be silenced. Um, so, you know, it, it's our job to protect these rights, regardless of who the speaker is, regardless of whether that reflects our own deeply held beliefs. And I would encourage everyone to move away from uh, a posture of trying to assign blame and into a posture of modeling a better way forward. Thanks again to Sarah Ruger for taking the time to speak with us about free expression today. And if you have any questions about the free expression priority initiative, please feel free to send them to me at top priority at afphq.org. As always, I look forward to reading your emails. And if you have any questions about any of the other priority initiatives, please feel free to send those along as well. Until next time, take care, and we'll see you then.